directly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, your gamers roll. radiocom Thought for the day. In the darkest of moments, the Emperor's light shines brightest. Hello, colonists, and welcome to episode 67 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, we're a podcast devoted to role-playing in the 41st millennium, using the gaming systems created by Fantasy Flight Games. In each episode, we cover a different system, and tonight we're going to be talking about Rogue Trader. But yep. before we get into tonight's episode, I want to just quickly talk about our brief fortnight in gaming, but it's, it's, I think it's a bit of an exciting one, because we have just started, or, or are about to start, a new 40k RPG campaign. Yes. Uh, and as luck would have it, it's also a Rogue Trader one. Yes. So, uh, as you probably know, we have a regular semi-regular weekday group. We've been playing the Star Wars Ed Empire system for 18, 19 months now. It was since the end of 2014 we started yeah, playing. Yeah, I mean, so. we've been playing it for quite a while now, actually. Yeah, and... Uh, Not uh, that we've particularly got very far. No, that's it. <laughs> well, we also know that in a situation, one of our players has gone away overseas for, I think, six weeks. Yeah. And that, that player had recently made them, their character quite pivotal to plot. And we've been playing for a long time. So he said, okay, let's mix up. Let's try something different for a bit. We'll play this while he's away. And then when he comes back, we'll decide, you know, what are we having more fun with? What do we want to do? You know, stick with what we've changed to. And we were going through a few different options. Uh, we talked about, I, I mentioned recently, I like the new Chronicle system. Um, we, we mentioned the 40K systems, particularly uh, Black Crusade or, or Rogue, Rogue Trader were the ones I'm most interested in. Uh, we considered the Game of Thrones RPG as well. Once again, Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, but after sort of turning and throwing, I, I ruled out Black Crusade only because there are players in the group who I don't think would go very well with player versus player content. And while you don't have to play that way in Black Crusade, I tend to find that it devolves that way. It can, yeah. When you've got players playing evil characters in a game, they can, you know, really turn up a notch sometimes, and that becomes uncomfortable some players don't like that sort of gameplay. So, yep, yep. so anyway, after we said we're going to do 40k, we narrowed it down to Rogue Trader. Uh, so we did get together last week and we did character creation. So we did the we did the dynasty, we did the characters. We didn't do the ship. There wasn't quite enough time for that. Uh, but we're pretty much ready to start playing shortly. So what have we got? We've got Rogue Trader, obviously. Rogue Trader. Yeah. Did we have the? Did, was the conversation had about running the game without a Rogue Trader? Just to... yeah, we, we did. But I think generally we came to the consensus that without a Rogue Trader, we don't really have as much control over where the game goes. Yeah, that's right. Because in a sandbox game, if you're not the rogue trader, you're doing what the rogue traders tell yeah. tell you. Really, I yeah. mean, yes, they have a council of advisors who are the other players. We've talked about this in, in past episodes, you know. It, but without a player rogue trader, it that takes it away a bit more. Yeah. Okay, so we do have a rogue trader. Uh, we have an astropath transcendent. We have a void master, and we have an arch militant. Yes, is our group. So. Uh, just the four players at the moment. Yeah, you know, when when the other player comes back, or if your partner ends up uh, getting shifts that allow her to play with us as well, we can work it out. Then you know we may have a, yep. a, a decent group going. But uh, in actuality, a few of tonight's topics I'm actually going to relate back to my planning for this game because I, I have chosen to set this up more in the the sandbox path, but but with a lengthy with a lengthy lead in. 
um, to, the, to the point that actually my, my original sort of leading idea is actually going to be tonight's plot hook as well. So, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah it won't, won't be any, any major spoilers, Mike. No, 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 it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you meet Bruce Willis, I won't tell you whether he's alive or dead. Yeah, okay. Just tell you. <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, so before we get to that, so we mentioned that this isn't a road trade episode today. We're going to do our news section. I'm going to talk about the colony system. Uh, then we're going to be looking at the Hazaroth class privateer in our new ship discussion. Then we'll do our plot hooks, war gear, uh, a review of Soul Reaver, and then a little section on uh, Empire building in Road Trader uh, yep. before we do our regular community section and close out the show. Okay, sounds good. So, I'm excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm keen to talk about Road Trader now. I've been spending a lot of time delving back into the books again, realising just how many ridiculous number of skills there are in Road Trader. Yeah, Road Trader, I have to say, they did suffer from a fair bit of skill bloat. Yes. And I'm glad they cut it down actually directly after Rogue Trader with, yeah. um, with Death uh, Starting. Yeah, with, with Death Watch. Yeah, Death Watch it, it was it was down. odd actually going back to running or to, to going through character creation in Rogue Trader because a lot of it I'd actually forgotten. Like I, I was trying to do Astropath Transcendence get free powers or do they have to, you know, and then, then I had to go back through the FAQ to find the errors as well because there's a whole thing with the powers having costs versus what's in the chart and everything. That so. said, if you go on to drive through RPG, the um, latest PDF you can get of the core book actually has the errata in it. Okay, I didn't know that. It's actually yeah. edited into it. Okay. I know because I actually went and purchased it. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I because I've, I've got the co- I've got the book, the physical book. Yeah. But at work taking a physical book to work isn't really possible. But yeah. we are allowed to use computers to to read PDFs and things. So. Yeah, well, I mean, I I, I buy all the books on uh, Drive Through RPG as well. And when you go to your my library link in Drive Through RPG. Uh, it actually shows you the last date each book you have was updated as well. So, oh, okay. So you'll yeah. be able to see if it's been if any of the others have been updated. Yeah, and it'll right. actually it'll go bold if it's been updated since you last downloaded that book as well. Oh, that'd be interesting to yeah. see actually. Yeah, so, so yeah. which Try, other ones have been fixed. Yeah, drive through RPG, check it out. Make sure you follow the, the affiliate link on our website <laughs> so we get supported too. But, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> shameless plug. All right, let's get into the new section, shall we? Okay. Commanded knowledge accessing Imperial archives. So I've got to say, it has not been a huge news fortnight across any of the major things across I wouldn't anything. say. No, That's not it. Really. No. Uh, on the FFG side, the only 40k thing has been the announcement of a new war pack for Conquest, which is Against the Great Enemy. And it includes, as a new warlord, James R. You know, the, 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 uh, the Storm of Silence. Yeah, it's not really a James R if the card doesn't fall over all the time. You know, well, I mean, the sitting card- flat on the table, it should still be able to fall over like the model. That's it. I mean, I mean I, one day I will find the original sculptor of James R and I will introduce him to New World of Pain. <laughs> so, yeah, it's the reason that pinning kits were created. Even then, pinning kits were a struggle to get in because you literally had to pin a tiny piece to a tiny piece. But yeah, we, essentially you had to put something into the base so that you could pin the foot. Onto a base. Yeah, we, we, uh, we've waxed lyrical about the James Hart figure before, but, uh, it looks like from the point of view of the rules for, uh, Conquest, it's mainly built around denying other people their special abilities. Okay. Uh, not only through the character, but also through the, uh, the retinue that comes with the character as well in the game. Uh, on the Games Workshop side, it's tank month apparently in Games Workshop, so a whole bunch of new, uh, well not new, just, just, I guess, new releases of tanks together. Like, you know, you can get three, Super heavies now for 495 Australian dollars. Is that all? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's funny you say that because I was just looking through some of the figures. Uh, I, I, I rarely look at Games Workshop prices because I don't buy a lot of figures anymore. And there was a new Tech Priest figure. So not like a special character, just a Tech Priest. Um, single figure, uh, and plastic, 50 bucks. Um, and it's odd because if you look at other stuff, like they've got a, a set which is three Space Marine champions for $50. So 
So I really wondered what it was made the, the single tech piece so costly. And the other thing I noticed was because they now show you in the pictures, they show you the sprue. Yeah. Um, and there's no sort of – one of the good things I always thought with the plastic figures was you'd often get different weapons, you know, different yeah, options you, and you, such. You, you know. can swap, swap out a couple of different variations of head. Yeah, or sometimes like one hand pointing or one hand resting at the side, you know. But yeah. every single sprue I looked at, literally every single figure was locked with what it carried, what its pose was. Yeah. Is that, has that been common recently or do you know? Um, for individual models, yes, it has been. It, like if you got, buy a set of uh, – Space Marines, like a tactical squad, you yeah. get a bit more choice and variation. But for the individual characters, it has been going a little bit that way. Yeah, okay. Mm. Anyway, it's, it's just the way it is. Anyway, so if, you, if, you're, if you're after tanks, you know, it's time to... Oh, yeah. or, <laughs> or if you're after Titans, you know, the, the new Warlord Titan head kits oh, yes. from, from Forge World, <laughs> so you can have a slightly different Warlord Titan. If well, you know, if, if your like, $1,200 Titan isn't quite well, look, unique if, enough. If, if you're fielding three, you want them to be distinct. You yeah, know, so oh, you can of tell course. <laughs> you don't want your <laughs> Titan to look like everyone else's. <laughs> Uh, okay, and over on the Eternal Crusade news front, uh, I guess the main thing we've seen now is that as of, I think this weekend just passed as we're recording, they have uploaded the build to the Founders server, which for the first time includes Playable Elba. So the players are going to get a chance to actually give the, give the Elba a run now as well. Okay. Um, I have been studiously keeping my Eternal Crusade up to date, ready for this to give it a go, but I have not yet had a chance to log in because I have been absolutely smashed by work recently. Okay. At any spare time, I've had a spent playing Rogue Trader. Yes. So, <laughs> actually, I will say that I'm going to have a lot to talk about. I have, I think, four gaming appointments already scheduled in the next two weeks, one of which I will point out is our uh, Dark Heresy Roll20 game. game. That's right. yep, we yep. Are, we are this Monday. Be, yeah, that's right. So that'll be after we post this episode online, but before the next episode, so we'll get it up on YouTube as well after it's done and talk about it, I'm sure, in our next episode as well. So. Yes. That's it. That's it for the news. Okay. So let's get into the meat of the show. Knowledge is power. Hide it well. Let's do this uh, system discussion. And I think when I spruiked this show on the last show, I said we're going to be talking about world building. Yeah. And what I was referring to there is there's a system in the uh, book Stars of Iniquity about creating uh, whole systems and such. What I decided to do was there's actually... There's also a, a similar system in the GMs kit as well. Yeah, that's a very basic Very, very basic, basic version. So, yeah. so this is the more advanced one from Stars Yeah, but, okay, that being said, there are actually two full systems in Stars and Equity. Okay, one at the start of the book is the, like the solar system creation, mm-hmm. and the one towards the end of the book is the colony creation and management. And uh, when I sort of put together the show notes, I was thinking more about the latter. So I thought, you know, in, in a future show, we will certainly talk about the world building. And in actuality, a lot of the material from the material from colony building and world building crosses over between the two, uh, which I'll refer to. I would expect so. That's right, yeah. There's no um, point building a mining colony on a planet, which is just agricultural land and nothing. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but yeah, the one I want to talk about today, uh, especially because I've chosen to use it early in our road trading game, is the colony building system. Okay. Um, okay, so... Colony building is based around the concept that the rogue trader or the group wants to found their own colony. There are a few notes about what it means to take over an existing colony, but it's more about, you know, I found a world or I want to find a world that's suitable for me to establish some sort of profit-making venture, basically. And uh, the first step in this is once you decide upon the core type of colony you want to do, and the four core types are um, a research mission, mining and industry, ecclesiastical and agricultural, and we'll cover what they mean a bit later on. Uh, each of those has a distinct profit factor cost. 
And the idea is that that whatever that cost is, and it's a random one, because it's, it's a D5 plus a number depending upon the complexity of what you want to actually establish. Once you say I'm establishing this colony, the initial investment of funds is a permanent reduction of your profit factor equal to that amount. Yeah, but yeah. you'd hopefully get that money back plus extra. Yeah, in the long run, that's right, yeah. So long as it doesn't get killed by Elder Raiders or, or Orcs or yeah, whatever. that's it, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it can die. Or mismanaged through, through, you know, yeah. a brother or a sister who doesn't know what they're doing. Exactly. Uh, but, I mean, the, the thing I like about this is that it doesn't matter how low your roll. It matters. If your product is below the minimum investment, then it's going to be an issue. But it's not like having you have to roll to establish this. You simply say, okay, I've only got 15 product factor, but I want to permanently invest seven in order to create this particular colony. You can do that. There is no yeah, cost to it. Other than the fact that you're going to be stone broke. That's it, yeah. Uh, now, the option is also presented of what they call uh, colony by contract. So this means that the rogue trader has been given the task by someone else of establishing a colony in that other person's name. Yeah. So the rogue trader still has a part of the investment, but it's not entirely their, their property as such. And, and what this does by uh, seeking the funds elsewhere, you halve the profit factor cost to establish a colony. The drawback is that any amount that you receive from it is courted. Yeah. Uh, now, it does say that you can make difficult commerce tests at suitable times. The suitable times up to the GM. To, to renegotiate the contract? Yeah. To, yeah. Uh, but the best you will ever achieve is half of the product factor. So, you know, you, you'll, it's, it's not a more sensible investment because you'll start off worse and you'll, the best you'll come to is the people. Yeah, see, with, whoever wrote these books obviously never met New South Wales government. No. no. You know, yeah. <laughs> the government invests everything. The person building it gets everything back. <laughs> <laughs> lose lose for the time. Yeah, but it's, it's it's not like you've got a cousin, you know, in the Imperial Council to you know get you get you the funds. So. You might. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, and once you sort of so once you've got the initial funding set up, um, the idea is that the GM then sets up a greater endeavor, and the greater endeavor following the regular rules, which I think is twelve hundred acquisition uh, sorry achievement points. Yeah, is all built around you moving the resources, setting up everything that's required, building what's there, all the stuff required to actually get the colony off the ground. So it's not just a case you say, okay, I spend my 12 product factor and bang, I've got a colony. Yep. Yeah, it's actually a case of we've got to... Actually do things now. Yeah, that's it. Fly around, recruit people, you know, purchase prefabs, you know, whatever the case may be, get it all established. Set defenses, yeah. hire guards. Potentially even find the world. Like the thing is, you can choose to establish a colony before you've actually found a suitable world, and then make finding the suitable world part of the greater endeavor. Well, so. I mean, you'd get the achievement points for actually finding the world, which would be a nice step. Yeah. But it's probably easy to have a world set up beforehand. That's it. Yeah. And in actuality, if you are the rules say if you are taking over a previously deceased colony, then you get some bonus achievement points for the fact there's already you know, some infrastructure established there. Yeah. Uh, and the last thing is a bit of fluff as you do a comedy charter. And there's a sample in the book of, you know, a comedy charter. Awesome. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, okay. Then once you've done all that, you now have a size one comedy. Right? And size one is basically just a village, a, a, a basic settlement of, of a comedy. And size goes all the way up to size 10, which is hive world. Bustling planet. That's it. Yeah. And it can't go any higher than that. Um, so what happens, it starts at size one, and every 90 days, uh, you make a test. You roll a D10, uh, and 
based on the result there, the colony will either shrink in size, remain the same size, or grow in size. So this is, I guess, my first little concern is, technically speaking, if you roll very well, you could go from, you know... A village to a high, bustling hive in, city. In 900 days. Yeah. Yeah, so it's under three years. I think it would take, you know, the, 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 way, the way infrastructure moves in Imperium, I think it would take a lot more than that. But obviously that's unlikely because it's only eight to ten does it grow. So you'd have to roll, you know, what's that, a 15% chance times 10 rolls. I, I'm not going to do the math on that. Yeah, right? yeah, works out about not even a one in a thousand chance of happening. Yeah. But it's still a chance. Yeah. And I have to agree with you. And, and it's a chance you can adjust because at the point that that roll is made, the road trader can choose to invest, once again, permanent profit factor. And for every permanent profit factor expended, you increase the result of the roll by one. Um, so if you if you happen to have 80 profit factor spare, you could guarantee a hive in 900 days. Three years, yeah. hive city, but will it pay back <laughs> 80 profit factor? Uh, it well okay. The, no. So, so the, the, the answer is no. The, the base profit factor value of the colony is uh, derived from its size. Okay. okay. Uh, and you know when you're getting up to the hives, you're getting into the like high teens and such of, of the base value of your of your um uh, of your colony. Uh, so just to go back to how this is going to integrate with my road trader game is that uh, so that your group uh, when you did your dynasty only ended up with twenty two profit factor. Yes. Pretty pretty much you went and, and it wasn't like, like we sort of discussed the various options. The group picked the options based on the description, but it pretty much ran down the line of getting the highest possible ship points and the lowest <laughs> possible starting profit factor. So <laughs> seventy ship points, twenty two profit factor is the is the nice. Yeah, that's it. Uh, and, and, and I, I'm not, I don't think anybody gamed the system. They just heard the, heard the options and, and, chose and picked those. at random. Yeah, that's it. It's not at random. They were considered. They weren't considered. Anyway, uh, so I'm going to say that a certain portion of that profit factor is an already established colony. Okay. Yeah. You know, so I, I designed this colony using the rules here. I made it a size two colony because I wanted it to be something slightly more established. And worked out what its product factor was because of that. So I think the value of it was, uh, I think it was either two or three product factors. So that means of your 22, you know, two, two points of it are already tied up as, they're already defined as this planet, you know. Now the rest could be liquid funds, could be treasures, it could be favors, it could be whatever else product factor can represent, you know. But I've chosen to make a colony because that colony is important to the start of the game. What you do with it from there is up to you as such, but that's why I've chosen to do it. Okay, uh, okay so getting back to size, uh, any time the colony decreases in size, you also say another characteristic other than size will also go down by 1d5 minus 3 to a minimum of 1. Okay, what are the other characteristics? Uh, we'll go through some of but they're basically complacency, order, productivity, and piety. Okay. Okay. Uh, now, if your size ever hits zero, the colony is dying dead. dead, basically. Everyone left, died, you know, abandoned the place, basically. You know, it's, it's now it's now horror movie um, fodder. <laughs> but, you know, whatever reason, it's... It, 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 the but, see, what you're saying is through, through bad roles, you could establish the same colony three or four times. Yeah, that's it. And each time it just dies out and you just yeah. keep shipping in, more in, people in. In actuality, it was almost doomed to do that before they released the errata for, for uh, starting the period to go through as well. Oh, so okay. I'm going to cover both the... I'm going to cover the rules as per the errata, but I'll mention where the mistake was in the past. Okay. Uh, now, whenever your size increases, uh, the idea is that some sort of 
infrastructure development will be required in order to sustain the colony through that particular that increase. And uh, we'll come back to those in a moment. But basically, your complacency goes down by one. until at The moment your size goes up, your complacency goes down by one until you build that infrastructure, basically. Okay. All right. So let's talk about these other characteristics. Complacency is all the start. I don't like the name complacency because... It sounds like laziness. Well, yeah, it does. But, uh, okay. preparedness. In, in all of these categories, the higher the number, the better. So if I say complacency goes up, you're like, yay, because we've got more complacency. Whereas complacency goes down, oh, no, we're screwed now. So you know, I, I would have you know, maybe called it contentment. I'm not sure. Maybe that would have been a better term for it. Yeah. Um, but that's the whole thing is that the, the uh, complacency score, higher score is better. That's what's important. Okay. Uh, and if you hit zero complacency, uh, your order and productivity both also decrease by 1d5. Uh, and you cannot raise those characteristics until your complacency goes above zero. Okay. Right? So, so what is complacency as such? Is it like civil order? Yeah, it's more, I guess, it's because order is a separate one as well. Okay, so... Yeah, complacency is more about just the contentment of the... Of happiness. The happiness, that's it. A, a well, gr- I, I guess in a grim duck game like uh, Rogue Trader calling it happiness score. Yeah, that's it. Not exactly. Uh, I, I'll give you an example of how, how complacency might be damaged. Okay, so let's imagine you've got an agro world, okay? Yep. And, and the agro world grows food and it lives off that food as such. And you as a Rogue Trader decide, I'm going to go to war. So you go to this agro and you say, I want you all to raise all your crops now, produce all the food. Uh, and you, you put them all, they, they work them all 24-7 until all the crops are, are, are taken in. And then you take all the crops onto your ship and fly away in order to um, prosecute, uh, prosecute a war. war. That will generally lead to, you know... Drop unhappiness. It. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, unhappiness. Starving peasants <laughs> taking all their, their favoured sheep. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, so as you say, if, if if complacency hits zero, then productivity and order both go down by one d five. Okay. Uh, now, as long as your complacency is greater than your size, uh, your profit factor value is also increased by one. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Uh, okay. Next one is order. All these scores are rated from one to ten. One to ten. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I think that a couple of them can actually go over ten as well. I have to I, without looking at the book. I, I, definitely, size is hard limited to ten. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much higher your complacency is than your size, so as long as it's higher. higher. That's right, yeah. So I, th- I think actually size in actually is limited, I have to say. So, okay. Yeah. Um, okay, so order basically represents the civil order in your, um, in your colony, effectively. Okay. So, you know, the, the, the crime rates, the, the danger of living there, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, now once again, if you're, <laughs> sorry? Sorry, I'm just thinking about, you know, the, uh, the brochure for going to live on this new colony world saying crime rates are low because <laughs> no one lives there yet. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, okay, so if you hit zero order, your profit factor value is automatically set to zero. Oh, it's basically, okay. it's, the, the, the colony cannot be profitable at zero order because it's basically anarchy. And, and every 90 days, the size decreases by one. Oh, as they all yeah. kill each other. Yeah, that's right. And all other characteristics decrease by 1d5. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so you, you never want order to go to zero. Um, that's that's bad. <laughs> it sounds bad. <laughs> that's it, yeah. Uh, but if your order is greater than your size, your profit factor increases by two. Profit value increases by two. Okay. Okay, next one is productivity. Pretty straightforward. It's how good your um, uh, colony is producing stuff, basically. Uh, if it hits zero, then the profit factor value is halved. 
Okay. So it's not, not, not quite as bad as order where it goes straight to zero. Um, and if your productivity is greater than your size, your value is increased by two as well. That's right, yeah. Uh, finally, piety. You know, how pious? Pious, how, you know, how, how good they are at keeping the emperor's faith as such. Uh, so at zero piety, uh, order and complacency both decrease by 1d5 and cannot be raised again until piety goes above zero. Uh, additionally, it also points out that cults may start to form inside, you know, inside the, uh, there might, there might be prayers made to dark gods, which might answer. <laughs> you know, the, the, the ecclesiarchy and the Inquisition might start to take an interest in your colony as well as it, as it becomes a, you know, wretched hive of scum and villainy. Yeah, so, okay, so, so yeah. low piety is generally bad as well. <laughs> That's it, yeah. And, uh, if your piety is greater than your size, then order and complacency are both increased by one. Okay. Uh, so they're, they're your basic, they're, they're your, your, your size, complacency, uh, order, productivity, piety, five main characteristics. All right. I mentioned before there's colony types, and the colony type determines two things. One, it determines the starting values for your colony, uh, and two, it determines a uh, special trait, basically. Okay. So going through research mission. Now, research mission is more built around uh, I guess the idea of researching archaeotech, um, like a, a a mission from the uh, mechanicus, for example, to try and recover lost tech, uh, maybe or, or a research station to develop new weapons or that's work right. on yeah, weapons that's right. and yeah. blow things up somewhere where it's not going to kill people. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so research mission, or I think starts at size one, but it's complacency starts at okay. What's well, that? Complacency starts at three. Okay. Prior to the errata, the complacency started at two. It's not a big deal for this one, but I'll explain with the rest why it's a big deal with the rest. So size one, complacency three, productivity, order, party, all at one. Okay. And the starting scores. So generally the people were happy, but it was very, very low at everything else. That's it, yeah. And you can say because the complacency is automatic, it's already above the size, it's already going to have a one factor increase because of the high, yeah. high complacency. Uh, now the special trait is if you're exploiting. So what exploiting means is, uh, say your world has a mineral or has some sort of resource, but it's determined by the world builder. The, once the road trader is aware of that, they can tell the, uh, the colony to begin exploiting that, that resource. And this is where your actual revenue return comes from. So we spoke before about the permanent investment of product factor in order to establish a colony. Okay. Now, what will happen is as the colony grows, its product factor value will increase and eventually it will hit the same point it was, how many points it cost to establish. Now you're cost neutral. It will also then grow Beyond that, so you're now your product factor will go up because of that. But when there is a resource, you can exploit that resource for one-off product factor boosts. Okay. So effectively, so it doesn't change the value of the colony, but it means that you just get a effectively it becomes funds. You sell you sell the minerals. You know. You, How often can you do that? Every ninety days. Uh, it's every ninety days. Now, every time you do that, the resource is depleted. So you generate the resource quantity during the um, uh, the world building stage, and every time you exploit it. The, the, the quantity of it is reduced until it's eventually completely depleted. And once again, raping the planet and taking all that stuff away will have an impact on your complacency as well. So you've got to, I mean, invariably the expectation is that the resources that are there are also there to sustain the world, but they sustain it at a, at a, at a neutral level as such. So if they're not exploiting it, the, the value never goes down, except for the fact that when you build a world, and we'll talk about this in the future as so with world building, if there is a colony on a world, you automatically decrease the starting value of the resources because at the end of the day it's assumed they had to use some of those resources to establish a colony. Establish a colony. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, so getting back to the research mission, if you have a organic compound resource 
a Archaeotech case resource or Xenos Ruins resource, then on on the planet, then automatically the productivity of the mission increases by two. Yep. And it generates one additional profit factor from any exploitation action. Okay. So that's quite a good one for, for raping resources, basically. Okay. Uh, for those specialized resources. Yeah. Yep. Uh, okay, then you've got mining industry, which is very similar. So here, size one, complacency two, productivity two, order one, piety one. This is where we start to see the benefit of the errata because all the other types, including like mining industry, ecclesiastical, and agricultural, started at a complacency of one. Okay. So let's imagine. Let's imagine this is what it was in the base book. One, one, two, one, one. Okay. So I build this colony. Nine days later, I roll a dice. It increases in size. Bang! It's now size two. Oh, my size is now above my complacency. Uh, so, uh, so, sorry, so, 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 my size goes up. I need hard infrastructure. I haven't built that yet, so my complacency straight away goes down by one. So now to my, zero. My complacency is now zero, which automatically means that my order and productivity decrease by one d five. They're both currently one, or you know, one or two at most. So they'll go down to zero as well. You know, um, the moment my productivity goes to zero, my profit factor value is half. The moment my order goes to zero, my profit factor becomes zero, and it starts decreasing in size every 90 days. You know, effectively, the moment it grew one step, unless you'd already invested in the infrastructure to increase the complacency, it was doomed the moment it grew. Okay. So that, that basically, the, the rule in the... Uh, oh, no, Bob's had a baby. Suddenly, everyone's <laughs> starving. That's right. So, so the rule in the errata is basically that all the... Starting values have their complacency increased by one. Okay. So you, you've got enough time for it to grow to size two, and then you've got to get the infrastructure. That's right. Yeah. So okay. so you can always basically keep the the infrastructure as long as you keep the complacency one ahead. You you always got room to grow. Okay. Uh, okay. So the advantage of mining in industry is if you have mineral resources, which are the most common when you're rolling up resources, uh, then your productivity increases by two, and you generate two additional profit factor from any mineral exploitation. Okay. Uh, you got a question? Yes. Does the player generally know how much of a mineral resource there is on the planet, or is that a secret number held by the GM? Okay. Um, it doesn't say. Um, I would probably say that unless some, unless they, if they use some methodology of determining it, then that's fine. Yeah. You know, but otherwise, if they, they yeah, don't know. That's it. Yeah. I mean. Okay. So, so you can't exploit, exploit, exploit. Up, oh, we've only got three points left. No more exploitation. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. And the other thing is that, like most planets, will have multiple of each type. Oh, okay. So, so generally speaking, when you uh, we'll cover this a few times. When when you generate a resource on a planet, the resource has a, a value of d100. Oh, okay. Now it may it may have a positive based upon the type of planet this is as well. So you know, incredibly rocky, high density planet will probably have a higher value of mineral resource. So you, you end up with over a hundred. Uh, but it could be, I mean, you can generate three, for example. Uh, and that, that one, you exploit it once and it's gone. Yeah. You know, or in actuality, if you, once you've got a colony there, if the colony's established, probably it's gone in the, in the building of the colony in the first place. But, uh, oh, well. yeah, but you probably have three or four mineral resources. Okay, so yeah. if you build a colony, it's possible within a year, yeah. so four times every 90 days, yeah. you could exploit the resource and you could grab a quick 10 profit factor and then just... Spend all of that on building up the colony again. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So just to reinvest it back in the colony, and there's no real mechanical problem with doing. Not really, no. Okay. Uh, okay. So next we've got ecclesiastical colony type. So this is size one, complacency two, productivity one, order two, piety two. So this one's actually the only one that's got three lots of two. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and the ecclesiastical benefit is that when you when your order decreases. You can instead choose to decrease your piety by the same amount instead of your order. 
So presumably you want to have your pi nice and high. They both start at 2, though, so I guess it gives you the ability to sort of balance the 2 between them. Uh, last one is agricultural, which is size 1, complacency 2, productivity 1, order 2, piety 1. Uh, and this one is any time your size would normally decrease, yeah. you roll another d10. On an 8 or higher, it doesn't actually decrease. So it's a much okay. more sustainable colony. That's it. So, and and for the sake of the game, I'm running. I, I built a agricultural colony. You should have gone mining. It, it's not a, it, it, for the sake of the storyline. It's not about what. The, so, that in in the scope of the game, the colony is is built by survivors of a void ship crash. Okay. So that all they were just in was growing food and surviving. So <laughs> they should have been interested in mining and industry to rebuild their ship to get the hell out. That's a life. That's a multiple lifetime thing, you know. People only think about in scope of their own lifetime. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. So the next thing you've got about your colony is you need to establish some sort of colony leadership. And this is a generally a person who is the. I, I just like to say this is the only bit of the book I actually read. Is it? Okay. Yes. Nice. <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, all the all the, all the sections of colony leadership. Bit, okay. The colony leadership. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, the, people are going to go back to the episode where we reviewed this now and see if you made lots of comments about how good the book was, and they're going to say, oh, Mike was speaking at his ass then. Anyway. <laughs> I don't think I did. I, I honestly, I, I glanced at the book. Yep. I, I read through it vaguely. But right. for this actual section, yep. I read the colony leadership section okay. just to see if later on there'd be any skills or things that characters need. Yeah. Okay, so you establish a colony leader. Um, and this can be an NPC. It can be... Generally, it wouldn't be a PC because the expectation is the colony leader is there all the time. Yeah. But one of the examples it gives is, say you've got a PC that wants to retire, like a player wants to make a different character, it might be good to assign that PC to the colony leadership role. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, weird boy in charge of the colony. <laughs> uh, because the important He's all thing... He's right. He's a sanctioned the, the, the important thing is you, you go off the highest... Attribute bonus in either intelligence, perception, or fellowship. So whatever the high attribute bonus is, that determines their impact on the product factor value of the colony. Okay. Uh, so usually the idea would be you might try and acquire a skilled individual with a regular acquisition test to do this. Uh, if you do choose to assign someone who is directly related to your dynasty, you have to make a role on the um, consequences of nepotism table. Yes. Yeah, which can <laughs> I, I mean, it can be pretty funny. horrible. It's like it can be pretty incompetent, really. Yeah, it's like I chose this guy because he's really competent, but I rolled and actually that was all off facade. He's actually really incompetent. He's had a lot. He surrounded himself by good people. No, no, and, no. Uh, it's not that. It, it, you listen to advisors. The problem is your advisors didn't want to tell you that your brother is a complete moron. <laughs> <laughs> he's a drooling imbecile. Oh no, no, no. He's your brother. He must that's, be. Yeah, good. That's right. Yeah. Um, but there are other types of leaders that give various bonuses as well, based upon their sort of background as such. Yeah. Uh, and the idea is that you would choose or roll one or two different personalities on a table as well, just to go and hear about what sort of person they are and the impact that would have on the colony. Okay. Uh, now, the next thing is infrastructure. Uh, because as I mentioned before, when the size goes up, straight away you must, well, you roll it on a table and determine what type of infrastructure the colony has basically outgrown. So either it's food supply, it's water supply, it's communications, it's transportation, etc. Uh, and at that point, as I mentioned before, complacency goes down by one until you go and build that particular infrastructure. Uh, the nice thing here is that the players can determine descriptively what the infrastructure is. So let's just say that... Um, roads. 
Sorry? Roads. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an example of transport. I'll give you a better example. No, right? no, no. Always roads. Always roads, roads yeah. <laughs> Until the planet is just one big road. Yeah. This is like playing Battletech. You just want to get your, your <laughs> battle mix going faster around the place. That doesn't work on Titans. Uh, anyway, uh, so, so, might. So, so say you've got communications as a requirement. Yep. So you may say that, you know, what you needed was a global telecommunications network. You needed somehow to, some, some methodology to create connections between the different settlements and such. So a Vox link, effectively. Or the group may decide, well, the planet's big enough now, it needs an astropathic choir. So it can communicate directly with the, um, the collective sector and, you know, request additional resources. So the players determine what that infrastructure is actually defined as. The infrastructure realistically should be one of three things. Yep. Temples, shrines, and cathedrals. <laughs> That's it. Nothing else. I thought you were one of the mining colony, not an ecclesiastical colony. <laughs> Even the mining colony, everything should look like a church. Yeah. Um, there are also other... Ooh, sub- ooh, sorry? And a skull factory. It just makes skulls <laughs> that look real. That's, workers go in, skulls come out. Yeah. <laughs> Supplies the entire imperium. There's got to be a planet somewhere that does this. Uh, uh, there are also uh, what are called supportive infrastructure. So these are not part of your hard required infrastructure. These are things that you can add in order to give you bonuses to your various stats. Yeah. So, you know, the moment you hit size two and your complacency is still two, you know that, um, well, it's not, it's not going to go down again as such. It's always going to be at least two unless something else affects it. But you might want to try and get your complacency up to try and keep it above the, the size in order to make the place more profitable as such. So you might go and build something that affects complacency. Or, you know, so uh, things like you can build a um, uh, an Arbitase precinct in order to reduce, or in order to improve order, for example. No, I, was um, gonna, I was about to say, I don't really see that improving complacency. complacency. <laughs> yeah, complacency is more things like nice things. You know, nice so things. That's it, yeah. And, and, and of course, the most important thing you can build is a residence for the road trader. Well, of course. <laughs> you need an imperial palace. That's it, yeah. <laughs> Just uh, probably don't call it the Imperial Palace. <laughs> so we'll talk about Empire suge- later on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Small suggestion. Um, and the last thing is a section on Calamity, uh, which basically says that um, every now and again, the GM may choose to roll on either the fortuitous events or the calamitous events table in order to sort of come up with some stuff which may be affecting the colony um, when, when the players are there. Okay. So, All Katak. Yeah, Xenos <laughs> attacks are among the various potential problems. So that's the system. Um, okay. Okay, I like this. I like this because I'm a bookkeeper type person. I like to have all this sort of stuff on paper and, and quantify product factor as much as possible into it. It's this and it's this and you know, this is the chance of it going up and down. And you know, if, 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 if your product factor is a number and the GM's attacking it, well, they're just attacking a number. But if your number is representative of colonies and worlds and people, it's more you're more invested in it if the GM decides to start attacking it. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Any other thoughts on your part? Nice. No, I mean, like I said, I haven't really read this particular section very much. Um, I thumbed through it and had a glance at some of the sections, but really, the only section I've actually read in depth is the bit about the assigning a leader yep. and leadership and all that sort of thing, which refers back to some of the other parts that I've sort of glanced at. Um, overall, the system looks all right. I mean, certainly. You're, you're right. It certainly makes it a lot more in-depth and detailed for the players if they know what their profit factor entails. And, yeah. you know, if they find out that something's happening on their world, it also creates lots of plot books, lots and lots of plot books. Yeah. 
I guess my only complaint with the system is that it can become a bit of a hassle to keep working out what all the various modifiers are on product factor value and, you know, things going above, things being above other stats or below others and it also changes the base stat, you've got to rework it again. I'll, so. I'll be honest, my issue with it is that it ha- you do the rolls every 90 days. Yeah. If I do a trip across yeah. the Cronus Expanse and some bad whoop rolls and suddenly it takes nine months to get there, I've got to make three rolls and I have no real way of impacting what that. happens. It's possible that my colony could die because I went on the let me Let me throw a house roll at you then I've read about and I'll probably use this one as well. And that is you do the roll every time the rogue trader visits but no more regularly than every 90 days. Okay, yeah, that sounds fair. Yeah. Or I suppose you could, if you've got a decent leader in charge of the group, an NPC, you could say that the role trader speaks for that person. They will you do the role still normally, yeah. and they have the authority to decide things, sort of, but they can't spend any profit factor. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Because okay. if, if it was me playing a role trader, I'd be rushing back every 90 days to see what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's because when you play Civilization, you have three cities and you build them up to maximum tech level, then you try to expand. No, no, no. I, I, no, I, I, that's not a place I I put lots of cities, but I just make sure that every single city is the largest, and every single city is garrison, and every single tech has been researched, and every single culture team has been established before I attack anybody else. <laughs> I, 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 I believe in sandbagging. <laughs> you know, so I do the same when I play Dawn of War. I, I don't start my first attack until I have every single unit researched. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> right then, so that's colony system. Let's move on with the rest of the show. Okay. All subsequents report to the administratum for career assignment. All right. Since we have, as I mentioned in our last road trader show, exhausted all the careers, we're yes. talking about ships. And since last time we covered a transport, I think this time we should cover a, um, a raider. Okay. So I mean, let's start off with what is a raider by definition as opposed to a transport? As opposed to transport. Um, it's a light ship designed to strike quickly. Attacking other lightly armored and defended units. Yep. Um, if it's going to attack larger ships, it'll be attacking in a squadron. Um, strike quickly, then run away. That's it. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're probably not the sort of ship you use to really destroy other ships or take other ships. It's pretty much take what you want and get out of there. Yeah, I mean, they're not particularly used a lot by the Imperial Navy. Where they are used is um, pirates. Well, when the Imperial Navy use them, they use them more as gunboats, so yeah. torpedo boats. That sort of thing they get in they, quick. They, they support ships of the line, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. So the one we're talking about today is the Hazaroth class privateer. Yeah. And this is certainly a raider which is been has been designed not for naval use, but more for pirates, pirates and such. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, privateers, Mike. You know. <laughs> uh, so the benefits of the Hazaroth particularly are it's a very fast raider. Yes. You know, there is only one fast in it with a speed of 10. It's the second fastest behind the Viper Scout Sloop, yep. which is really like only has one weapon and is very long. It's not armor. even a kilometer long. Yeah, it's. <laughs> come on. Seriously, yeah. <laughs> to me, nine football fields. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, so, so the, the Viper is very specific about being a. You know, a very light, you know, a very lightly weapon, but horribly fast raider. Yep. But behind that is you've got a, a, about three or four raiders that are speed ten, and the Hazaroth is among those. Uh, it's the fastest book, sorry, fastest ship in the main book as well. 
Yeah. That's what you have to work with. Um, I'd say that as a raider goes, it's sort of a jack of all trades. So it's got a mixture. It's got, you know, low armor, but a high hull, you know, so it can, you know, it takes less punishment, but it can take more hits. Uh, it's got average maneuverability, average detection, you know, so it's probably. It's got excellent maneuverability. It's up in the 20s. Yeah, but there's other raiders up in the 30s. Yeah, I know. So. It's still pretty maneuverable. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm comparing it to other raiders here. Oh, which okay. right, yeah. So I'm just saying, if, 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 why would you choose a Hazmos over other raiders? Is I think more because it is a more well-rounded ship. It's got a fair bit of space as well. Yeah, that's it. I was going to say, it also has a, a relatively low cost. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of, lot of raiders are either 30 or 35 points. This is one of the 30s. So it means that you've got, you can really customize it with what you actually want, you want to do. Yeah. So, just to go through those stats, speed of 10, as I mentioned, uh, detection of plus 12, an armor of 14, which as I mentioned is quite low, but it does have a decent hull integrity of 32. The total space is 35. Maneuverability is plus 23. Uh, target rating of 1% for any ship of size. Uh, as I mentioned, 30 ship points, and it has one dorsal and one prowl-based weapon. Yeah, it's important that he's got a prowl-based weapon. Which means you can use a lance. Which means you can use a lance. Yeah. Unlike the frigates, which is the next size up, yeah, I think there most are, of them yeah, there are, only have dorsal weapons. Yeah, uh, or... Um, is that only dorsal? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but they usually have two dorsal, won't they? But they yeah. usually have two dorsal. Of course, dorsal can fire Any front, left, right, can't yeah. fire behind them. Oh, that's right, that's true. Yeah. So, so, I mean, this is the advantage of the uh, the, the raiders in general, is you can mount a lance. Yeah. And because it's a classic... Battle, te- battle technique of have a lance and a macro battery, and you use the macro battery first to eliminate the void shields, and then the lance completely ignores the armor, basically. And so. hopefully you've used your speed and maneuverability to get in behind the enemy, yep. shoot them up the bum, do some damage, yep. and then stay behind them so they can't get to shoot back at yep. you. i got to say, just as a quick aside, Mike, you know what I found out yesterday? What? There is a Man of War computer game. Man of War. Yeah, you remember Man of War from Ben's Workshop? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's one of my favourites. I remember your massive dwarf fleet. That's right, yep. And they they actually did a Man of War computer game. Recently? uh, It looks relatively recently. Well, sorry, when I say it looks recently, it's like it's in the pre-release alpha stage at the moment. Oh, wow, it hasn't even been finished yet. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And it looks terrible. (laughs) It looks awful. So it looks like Man of War. (laughs) It's like I'd rather go play Assassin's Creed Black Flag. Oh, wow. Ship to ship combat, you know. Um, yeah, it's uh, about the only cool thing is uh, they've incorporated all of the um, the uh, you know all the animals that you could be attacked by, so like the megalodon that sort of stuff, you know. So yeah. there's some great screenshots of your ship being bitten in half by a giant shark, you know, while your character is shooting at it uselessly with a musket from the deck. Oh, yeah. Excellent. <laughs> anyway, getting back to the Hazaroth, um, it doesn't have any special traits. A lot of raiders don't, you know. So whereas yeah. if we look at the transport last time had the, the cargo holds, this is, there's no special traits in this raider. Uh, some useful components for Hazaroth. Uh, I would say that probably one of its main strengths is in that hit and run technique. So you know, or boarding actions. Yeah, board- on other transports. That's it. Yeah. So uh, that's why I thought. Yeah, barracks, motor yeah. servitors are two things that really benefit hit and run. Uh, and, and probably if you wanted to try and make up for its one weakness being its relatively low armor. Something like uh, reinforced interior bulkheads. Yeah, yeah, yeah reinforced so. interior bulkheads. Maybe extra armor plating. That isn't. I mean, it's armor fourteen. Yeah. Extra armor plating is going to bring up to fifteen. That's yeah. Not really a huge. Advantage. But that's what most other. That's what most other raiders are though. Yeah. So, um. Yeah. yeah, I'd agree with those. Maybe. I suppose the next question is, what sort of weapons do you go for? Do you go for long range or short range? I'd say short range. Yeah. I'd say go for a short it's, it's, range it's a, it's a lance and something yeah. like a, a pyro lance. Sorry, um. Pyro macro cannon battery. Yeah. You no. Know, do lots of fire criticals and then board the damn thing. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, that's that's what I thought. This is a it's a it's more of a combat ship. Oh yeah, definitely. So yeah, I'm thinking that like in combat, it's going to want to get in close. Um, you know, use hit and run tactics. So if you've got other components which increase ballistic skill, which is a stack of you know like yeah. a combat bridge. No, um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that it's important to keep in mind that this is a warship. Yeah. It's not like the transport where it's just transporting things. It's not like a frigate where you can give it a mixture of stuff. Raiders tend not to have enough space to actually put in everything you want. Yeah. So it's going to be good at one thing. And the way it's built with the speed, maneuverability, low armor, proud weapon slot is kit out the war. Yeah. Don't, don't waste your time putting in observation domes and libraries and all that sort of garbage, arbitoriums and things like that. It's not really suited for that. Yeah. So, a question for you, Mike. Say you were making and we were playing a new Rogue Trader game, not long between because you've got high ship points there, but say that you ended up going with the one which gave you very low ship points. Yeah. And any any sort of frigate was going to be very under you know, underbuilt as such. And you were cruising between either a well specced out transport or a well specced out radar. What would you prefer? Personally, yeah, um, I'd probably go the well specced out radar. Yeah, because with a well specced out radar, you can get the transport. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what most privateers think of as well. Yeah, yeah funnily <laughs> enough, um, that's, the old, that's the old story. If you've got one man with food, one man with a gun. You end up with one there with a fruit with fruit and a gun. Yeah. <laughs> it, it depends on the group. Depends on the game we're going to be playing. If there's no one in the group who's particularly well suited for combat, yeah. transport. Yeah. You know, if it's a very social group and intellect high group, you know, no arch militant, no void master. I'd say probably go the transport. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a normal, well-rounded group. The Raider may well be better choice. Personally, I'd choose the Raider. Yeah. The only reason, just going back to any early points, that I would consider maybe long-range weapon with a Raider is that its high speed means that if it does take on something too big for it or realizes it can't win, it can get out of range very quickly. But if you've got to spend two turns just getting out of the long-range weapons of your opponent, then yeah, if you've got a long-range weapon itself, you can engage from long-range and then get out of range quickly. But I have to disagree. With the high maneuverability, you're going to be evasive maneuvering away from them very fast. Okay, that's true. Yeah. And if you slap something like an Imperium mantle onto the ship so that it's very easy to, to go dead and just disappear, yeah. which you should really consider if you've got the spare power floating around, which you probably will, you'll run out of space. Is that, is that or is that No, no, no. no, no. Okay. You want to get the Imperium yeah. mantle. It's a very useful piece of gear. It's just quite high power cost. Yeah. But with a raider, you're usually going to run out of space before you run out of power. Yeah. Unless you take lots of laser batteries and things like that instead of macro cannons. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, any other thoughts on the Hazaroth? I mean, it's 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 a. I think out of all the raiders on the, in the book, it's probably the most generic as such. You know, all the other raiders have something that um, makes them quite unique. Or yeah. From a mechanical point of view, I think that we've covered everything. From a storytelling point of view, remember that these ships. This particular class of ship isn't built by the Imperial Navy. Yeah. It's built by either independent contractors or heretics or pirates or someone, some other form of um, undesirable ne'er-do-well. Yeah. Um, it's not going to be the floating cathedral that a lot of, lot of no, warships No, this are. is going to be ugly and practical. And if you're the GM and you're running the game, make sure you describe it as such. Yeah. You know, maybe it was built by a rogue trader to look like a little cathedral. 
but it's unlikely. Or customised that way. Or customised it that way. But generally speaking, no. No, it's not going to be like that. Yeah. Alright, let's keep going, shall we? Okay. Attention, loyal servants of the Imperium. Stand by to receive orders. So as promised, my plot hook today is going to be derivative of what I've set up for uh, the game. So this is, it's not quite the same, but uh, anyway, this is what I've got. Uh, the rogue trader has only recently inherited their title after the passing of the former sign of their dynasty. As they and their crew begin to take stock of the dynasty's holdings, they discover numerous colonies founded in the former scion's name at considerable cost. How will they go about securing their interests and finding out why the former scion spread their interests so far? So this is just the idea that if you're creating a new game and you want to sort of have used the rules we've discussed here today, is to throw a colony at the group straight away. It's to say that part of that initial product factor is based upon a built an established colony. And in this case, what I've done is I've created a colony with a backstory. So just to give you, I mean, this is no, no real spoilers for Mike. The group has not quite finished building the ship yet, but one of the things they've chosen to go for is the ship trait um, Planet Bound for Millennia, uh, which of course means that the ship has been you know, crashed for some period of time. And so, in the scope of my game, the colony world that the road trader first owns is the world where the ship was discovered and where the crew of the ship after its original crash one year ago, the, the descendants of that crew now live on a colonized planet, basically. So, uh, and there's, there's more backstory to it than that, you know, the whole why the ship crash and et cetera, et cetera. That's all, that's all stuff to be found out in game. But, yeah. you know, I, I decided to use the colony creation, world creation and colony creation to establish a set piece which the game will start in as a sandbox game. Okay, so you can, do the, you can do the same thing. So this is one plot hook event, one plot hook idea. Simple as using one of the rule sets to create a set piece for your game. Let's keep going. Okay. Revere the Omnisia, for it is the source of all power. So tonight's war gear is actually, it's, it's derived from a topic other than what we've been discussing so far. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually pulled it out because the next thing we're going to be talking about is our review of Soul Reaper. Yep. And when we first spoke about Dark Eldar in episode 52, uh, we chose our war gear about the Cabalite armor. Yep. Uh, but I chose to use a different piece of war gear from uh, the Soul Reaver as well and, and talk about that. And, well, a, a group of war gear, because uh, it's one that I find thematically interesting, uh, and that is Dark Matter Weaponry, Eldar Dark Matter Weaponry. Okay, yeah. Uh, also known as Dark Light Weaponry. Yeah. So... It's almost like this came into being from a fluff point of view of because they said Eldar, so Eldar have bright lances, so therefore Dark Eldar must have dark lances. Yes. Yeah, it, it was almost like the, quick, someone find me the, the antonym of this word and that'll be what the bad guys use. Yeah, um, it, it was very much a moment of, well, the Stormtroopers fire red bolts, so the Imperial, so, so the Rebels should fire green bolts. It's all the way around though. The Stormtroopers fire green bolts. Then. <laughs> Does it really matter? So, so, sorry, I should say, X-Wings fire red bolts and TIE Fighters fire green bolts. Uh, whatever. <laughs> anyway. Thank you, nerd. <laughs> Come on. It's a Warhammer podcast. Okay. Actually, i got to just quickly say, just for a moment, that uh, this weekend I went to, I was mentioned before, I went to a science and technology museum in Australia's capital, Canberra. And uh, when we first got there, because we've all got kids, the group that were there, we all went down to sort of the nought to six play area, and they had this sort of water play area. And all the Did kids you enjoy were, yourself there? I had a great time. Uh, the kids were all playing with this sort of water player, and there was like a staff member there that was obviously there to make sure that they were safe. And uh, she's noticed that one of our friends has a stormtrooper on her shirt. And she's going, oh, you know, I love your shirt, you know. Uh, you know Star Wars, love Star Wars, you know. And then she saw another girl in our group had a, a Batman shirt on. She's like, oh, I love your shirt, love Batman. That's what, you know. 
And then she saw me and I had the, um, uh, I want you for the Imperial Inquisition shirt, like with the Inquisitor on it. And she goes, oh, Warhammer, I love Warhammer, you know, and I thought, wow, yeah, that's, she's got good geek, geek, geek cred, this girl, you know, like she's, okay, Star Wars, you know, Batman, everyone, but Warhammer is, is, uh, uh, it's rare you come across people going, oh, I love Warhammer when they see your shirt, so, <laughs> that, was, that was cool, anyway. Okay. Speaking, sp- speaking about nerds. But anyway, so dark, dark light weaponry. Um, so, aside from the, you know, swap, word swap fluff, yeah. uh, dark light weaponry is supposed to be weaponry wherein the ammunition is derived from Effectively, the stuff of black holes. Yeah, or, 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 or it's also, depending on what fluff you read, like um, parts of the warp in it rolled into it as well. Yeah, the sort of concept of black holes and the warp are somehow linked. inextricably linked in exactly as well. And so that when it fires, it fires a beam of this dark matter energy, which has horrific effects on any sort of living tissue or any armor it pretty much passes oh, straight through anything armor. it hits that's it yeah so stop. when you look at dark matter weapons in the rule set first off they all have pen 16 yeah which is ridiculous ridiculous that's right yeah, yeah. you're never going to hit anything other than a tank yeah that has more than 16 armor that's it yeah they all have um, felling one yep so you know, awesome unnatural toughness that's it uh, and they all have proven um, yep. the biggest one having proven four yeah, so minimum dice roll. That's it, yeah. And, and, you know, they are, they're all minimum 2d10 weapon, 2d10 plus something. So if you go to the biggest one, a Dark Lance, then you've got, I think, 300 meter range, 2d10 plus 16 damage, 16 penetration, uh, felling one, proven four. Yeah, and it's minimum dice roll for each individual dice as well. So that means it's minimum... 24 damage, penetration yeah. 16. Yeah. <laughs> felling one. So no, no double toughness bonus of it. <laughs> oh no. Um. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, it's unlikely players are going to get these things because mm. you've got to look at the rule set for. Well, already dark lances are very rare, and the other two, like the blaster and blast pistol, are rare. Yeah, and everything that you get from that book, if it, you don't get it in the Dark Eldar City, yeah. automatically increases in rarity by four stacks. That's it. So automatically they're near unique and unique. Yeah. <laughs> but I still think they're overpowered. Not yeah. They're not hex rifle overpowered, but they are still. Yeah, the, the only balance is that they have relatively low ammunition and a very high reload time. So the, even the Blast Pierce and the Blaster are three full in their reload time and four full for the Dark Lance. Um, after I think 36 shots. Oh no. Yeah, 36 shots at 2d10 plus 16. Okay, so after you kill 36 <laughs> guys, one guy per shot. <laughs> Come on. You I mean, it's, it's heavy, so it, I guess it's not that different from a last game. Yeah. You know, um, Just better. Because <laughs> it uses traits that went out when last games were defined. Yeah, exactly, right, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. It, it's not overpowered. By comparison, but this isn't the sort of thing you should be pulling out to shoot at players. Yeah. Not really. Not unless they're they're combat wombats and you're making a point that attacking the heavy gun emplacement is suicide. Actually demonstrated by one of their NPC <laughs> followers getting hit with a you know a dark light. With, with a small black hole. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> After that happens once or twice, they should change their minds. I and mean, it's a perfect weapon for that sort of thing. But realistically, do you really need stats for a weapon that does that? Yes, yeah. I mean, and, and even even the blast pistol and blaster, despite being a pistol and a basic weapon, they're not common even among LR troops. No. And they're, they're, they use a spinner rifle, spinner pistols, and these are more specialised versions for harder targets. Yeah, but 
specialized troops. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any gem that says, okay, you come across, you know, 1d4, Dark Eldar with blast pistols is being a bit of a jerk. <laughs> well, if they're the personal bodyguard of the Archon and you're fighting against as well, it's understandable. Yeah, but even true. then, oh. yeah, you should be picking a way to fight them where you don't have to fight against D5 Eldar with Dark Eldar. Right, well, let's, let's get on to our review then where we can talk about just how, how uh, the Eldar Dark Eldar are in, in uh, Rogue Trader. Okay. My lord, the information you requested is now available for your review. So on to our review. And mm-hmm. we are talking about the Soul Reaver today. And the Soul Reaver is part adventure module, part expansion book. Yeah. And uh, now, Mike, we have spoken about some of the Rogue Trader adventures in the past. And uh, usually we give a bit of a, you know, spoiler warning. And there will be some spoilers. So I'm going to try and keep it mill because we might, like, this is probably not a module I would choose to run for a group just if I was running a road trader game but I may still run it for our group because we do a podcast and it's our responsibility to actually make use of the stuff and talk about our experiences when doing it yeah um but I, w- I will go a bit light on the spoilers so that if we choose to run it with this current road trader group that you're not going to be completely oh you're just going to happen next but there, there will be there will be some, some stuff I can't avoid yeah that's fine. because this book does have a degree of it of deus ex machina no you know, so <laughs> It's just the way it is, I'm afraid. Okay. Uh, okay, so uh, the book actually starts with quite a long 24-page introduction. Uh, and that primarily goes through a few pages just introducing the Dark Elder. You know, what just, is a Dark Elder? Yeah, assuming that you know the, the, the reader has never, it's not a big 40k plan, doesn't know what Dark Elder is. Doesn't even know so. what a normal Elder is. Yeah, so it, it explains you know the City of Kimura and the relationship of the Dark Elder to the Eldar and about their culture and their, the cabals. and the, the, hey, It's okay, it's still useful primary if you're not you know, hugely in-depth on, on what Elder are. That's it. Uh, then you've just got a basic run-through of the adventure. And, and this is probably one of the more exhaustive adventure summaries I've seen because historically they sort of have, in these books, adventure summary of like, you know, here's a, here's like three paragraphs on each section of the book. Okay, moving on. This one's sort of got like a short description of each, then almost like a page longer description of each before you actually get into the chapters itself. So it gives you, okay. you, you can actually learn a lot about what you're going to be coming up against just by reading those, the primer. The, the primer, basically, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then finally, you've got a gazetteer on the Nexus of Shadows. So the Nexus of Shadows is a Dark Eldar... City? W- uh, yeah, city slash world. It's, it's, a, it's a created planet that basically has the equivalent of like a Dark Eldar hive. Yes, yeah, it exists within the web That's it, exactly right, yeah. Uh, and it tells you all about, you know, the, the, the political factions, the cabals, um, the... Uh, the locations, the key figures, the history, you know, enough that it could be a jumping-off point for a campaign in this particular thing if that's what you wanted. Because at the end of the day, this book does include rules of playing Dark Eldar, so it could be a, a home hub location. And if so. there was going to be a group of humans dealing with Dark Eldar, it would be Rogue Exactly right, yeah. Uh, okay, which brings us on to the, the start of Chapter 1. So Chapter 1 is the first adventure, which is called The Queen of Shadows. and I guess I, I, I'd like to read other people's reviews before I do my reviews as well. I want to see what the sort of general feeling is. I read some reviews on this book. I, I gotta say, I, my opinion of the book was actually higher than most of the reviews I read. A, a lot were, were quite negative. And a lot of them didn't, hadn't run the game, just read the book and read like, we don't say anything, we haven't run the game, we just read the book. But the, the, most of the problems come from this chapter. And it's pretty much the whole thing of that the book starts off with a Dark Elder Archon. Um, 
by the name of Selene Morn coming to the rogue traders trying to make a, a deal with them, basically. Okay. Uh, and I guess this is where people feel that the, the, the wheels fall off solid because, as you said before, if you're playing rogue trader and you, your group is, you know, puritanical, ultra, you know, emperor serving, uh, you know, the next best thing to Imperial Navy, then it's going to be pretty hard to sell this first, um, this first encounter. This comes down to the, the basic thing of know your group before you try to run the module. Yeah, and I will say what the book does very well here is the book gives about five or six different examples of how they can meet and then five or six different examples of how she sells the deal to okay. Uh Because, you know, some examples could, for example, be that the both their ships are, you know, inexplicably pulled into some sort of web encounter, a warp encounter, I should say, uh, or real space encounter, and they have to work together to get out of that and once the Dark Eldar sees how resourceful the humans are she comes forward to strike up the bargain as such. Um, one is that the Adeptus Mechanicus become aware of the MacGuffin and actually set the group to find the MacGuffin uh, allowing the fact that they may have to deal with uh, you know, profane forces in order to actually to do that as such. Yeah. Um, so I didn't mind so much this. I think that most road trader group. Okay, when we ran on Bound, we had one road trader group that was like ultra puritanical. You know, any, anything which is not the absolute imperial norm, we we get mad at it and shoot. But generally speaking, that's not the average road trader group. I don't think the average road trader group. Well, is they're not going to be a very successful rogue trader if they're not rogue at all. Yes, yes. They might as well just be normal traders. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's the game charters captain. Yeah. <laughs> really. That's it. Um, so then it comes to the actual deal itself. And, and the deal is that um, this Archon is has been exiled from Kamora, exiled from the Nexus of Shadows, and it is her plan to attack the Nexus of Shadows, wipe out her enemy, and effectively take over in a bloody coup. Okay. And she believes that the... Depending on which sort of intro using either she fears that the enemy has a particular weapon or that there is a weapon that's unused that she can use in her attack and that is uh something called the soul reaver which is an ancient xenos ship which has been um effectively crashed into it and incorporated into the superstructure of the nexus of shadow uh, the nexus of uh yeah uh sorry yeah, nexus of shadows yes uh and so the, her her pitch to the group is she wants to help them get onto the Nexus of Shadows, get onto this ship, wrest it from the control, like right, get it, get it off the Nexus, and then use it to wage her coup as such. And because it's a Xenos ship, you know, the intent is. It, this is probably one of the other major things I, I think with this adventure is that the player characters, when they hear the MacGuffin is a ship, I think a lot of people are going to say, "Well, the end reward for this game should be a ship. Should be a ship. That's right." Although it should have started out, it's not intended for the group to actually walk away with the, the Soul Reaver at the end of the game. Well, it'd be difficult to use an Eldar ship. Yeah, it's it never actually says in the book that it's a Dark Eldar ship. Yeah, a lot of the stuff describes it as being like Dark... And there's, there's a picture in the book, and it looks like a Dark Eldar ship. It just gets referred to as a Xenos ship all the time, basically. Nice. Um, but, you know, the, the whole, important thing about the Soul Reaver is that it is fueled by the souls of the dead. That's, yeah, that's what makes it powerful, apparently. That's, what, that's all the players know at the start. It's fueled by the souls of the dead. And it's a very powerful weapon, but it's it's like a prize of the Archon, which rules the Nexus of Shadows. In fact, it's, it's effectively moored to the city. Uh, so the the next part of, of Chapter 1, which I think is actually very well done, is about 
going to the Nexus of Shadows. Now, Dark Eldar and enemy uh, humans are traditionally enemies, okay? But Dark Eldar cities are quite unusual in that, that you know, you, it would not be uncommon to find Dark Eldar dealing with various other alien species, privateers, you know, certainly not with Inquisitors, yeah. but with less scrupulous members of various species. Human, Slith. Yeah, that's it. It, it. So it's really up to the player characters how they want to go about the uh, getting onto the Nexus of Shadows and actually getting to the ship. You know, some may say, you know, it's it, we go in guns blazing. We fight our way there. We, we claim the ship. Yeah, we fight through a city. Yeah, good idea. I know. It's like, yeah. um, but but it, 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 you've got the whole gazetteer there. You've got all these factions. You know, the whole idea is can you sort of build up, uh, you know, support. Yeah, contacts, support, people who will get you things you need, people who can get you into places. Um, and you are dealing with alien culture, which view you as a lesser form of life. You know, it's the whole, the whole thing where the old art typical name for humans is Monkeen, which basically means like lesser one. Um, but yeah, effectively they could be going to an entirely different environment to try and stealth or, or subterfuge their way towards this ship, basically. And when the group reach the ship, uh, the next scene is basically them attempting to free it from its moorings um, usually with explosives, I think it's for the example. But this is where the first real Deus Machina comes in. They, the group has been observed the whole time by a, a canny individual who steps in and captures the group. So it's got various ways to run the encounter, but the the intended outcome is to be knocked out in a cell with all your gear taken. <laughs> it is, isn't it's it? Not, it's not going to go that far yet. It's to be captured. It's to be captured. At the end of chapter one, the intent is that the group is to be captured. Um. And there are various rules for the common encounter, how that may take place, but at the end of the day, the the LR are more interested in capturing the players now and killing them. So, then we move on to Chapter 2, which is called Blood, Sand and Steel, where you wake up in a cell with with all your gear taken. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (coughs) I will throw one thing ahead of the book's credit. There is a sidebar at the start, which basically says, what do you do if the players absolutely manage to come up with the best idea to get away? Yeah, how can you do this? You know, and the the whole second chapter is really built around what they do while in captivity. So you could just skip chapter two and go straight to the, the sort of the conclusion of chapter three. It would Let me guess, gladiatorial pits. Well, that's it. I mean, it's, it, what 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 a dark I usually do with their prisoners? Yeah. Gladiatorial pits. Yeah, that's it, yeah. So, or just torture victims, but. <laughs> That'd be rather less fun to play. <laughs> That's it. So, um, the the start of the second chapter is basically the, the group have had all their awesome gear taken off. They've been given the typical sort of you know gladiatorial weapons and armor of the the slave pits, and they are being trained to be gladiatorial fighters by um, you know effectively a, a, a so exactly right yeah. Uh, and and this chapter is actually quite long. So the idea is that they, you know, they 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 go through training and they basically come to the idea that the the sort of gladiatorial circuit, the arena, the whole all people they interact with is its own microcosm. You know, there are different factions with it, there are different gangs, uh, and what they're trying to do then is basically get everyone to charm at the end. I am Spartacus. <laughs> it, it's it's funny you say that because when I read this chapter, it so much reminded me of watching Spartacus, like the, the, the Netflix TV show recently as well. Yeah. Is that you know it, it, it's a very small environment, but it's a it's a very detailed environment where the group are basically trying to impress certain people, get certain people on the side, and it's got all these key figures like key gladiators or key members of the of the circuit as such 
And like I said, this is what impresses them. This is who their enemies are. So people are going to try and work out who, who who's who in this particular environment and who do you want as allies. Who can, but the whole idea is you're trying to get to the point where there are enough people behind you that you can stage a slave revolt. Slave revolt. That's it, yeah. Get your gear back. And, and, and that's basically the end of chapter two is when the actual revolt takes place. But it's a very involved process in the meantime. You've got this extra mechanic called favor, which is how you track the way that you sort of develop within the arena as well. And sometimes you have to fight because certain people, like some gladiators, are only impressed by gladiatorial skill. You know, there there are other meth- other things that non-combat characters can do as well, and there are certainly, you know, I I, I well, I think it was quite common in in Rome to pit people against a particularly arduous opponent, you know, like slaves with wooden swords against like experienced soldiers in armor. Uh, or lions. <laughs> or lions. <laughs> I think in this case, yeah, the, the GM I think is encouraged to make the, the 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 pit fighting scenes a little bit more more balanced for the group as such. Um, but I actually quite like this chapter, despite the fact it starts off with your, you know, the bane of your role playing existence. Yeah, sometimes it works. Yeah, it works in the middle of a campaign. It can, so long as it's not overdone. Yeah, that means, as far as I'm concerned, it's in this one adventure. In no other rogue trader adventure they've written can it be used again. Okay, no worries. Uh, okay, so this leads us on to chapter three, which is the Maelstrom of Souls. Yeah. And this chapter basically starts off with a concept that the slave revolt that the players led pretty much leads to a city-wide uprising. Um, you know, not not just by slaves, but literally factions seeing the the, uh, the just chaos. The, the chaos as an opportunity to you know to take each other out, that sort of stuff. You know, um, and, and it becomes a, a war in the streets. And so it starts off with a group basically going, okay, well, let's get back to our original objective. Let's get the Soul Reaver and get off this. Off this planet, and then you know, sort of meet up again with the Archon and, and Solar sort of Harish, and we can go back about our business with our with our wealthy reward. Uh, so yeah, there's a whole with our cold trade contact. That's it. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole scene where the uh, you know you, you, they get to the uh, the Soul River again, they free it from the city, they get their own ship to drag it out into space, where they discover that the Archon has launched their attack in the middle of the chaos, and so now you've got this big space battle with different LR factions going on. And um in actuality the the Eldar Archon that was the enemy as such, not the one that, that they were the firebomb but her enemy as such, has actually already been assassinated. But his spirit has been dragged into the soul engine of the the, the Soul Reaver. And he is a powerful enough individual that he can basically exert control over the ship. So maddened by what's happened to him, he pretty much the soldier starts attacking all the old art ships. Yeah. And so the sort of the, the final conflict is on this ship trying to destroy the the physical representation of yeah. the Archon in, inside the ship, which leaves the ship a derelict hulk at the end, basically once once its soul engine is basically destroyed. Okay. Um, but the idea is that the the, the 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 what's offered by the Archon is usually like immense wealth or future favor or power as such. So yeah, I, I would never sell the ship as the final, the final um, prize. At the very least, I think that a, a Kenny Rogue Trader would be able to see that knowing the person in charge of the Dark Elder Nexus. Yep. You know. Good, good thing, yeah. Good and, and, thing. and surprisingly, you're going to be able to go there and buy things, which you can then take into the Imperium and sell at four steps increased rarity. <laughs> surprisingly, the Archon that approaches the group never actually betrays them. The group has the opportunity to betray her. Yeah. But she never actually betrays him. And oh. 
in the end of the in the end of the book, in the conclusion, there's pretty much six possible outcomes based upon who the group helped where, what the group did at certain turning points, who won certain battles or such. It tells you who is the final, you know, who who finally controls the nexus and are they positively or negatively disposed towards the PCs. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it, it could go. It could be quite open ended at the end, is what I thought. So. I like the adventure. I said the main problem I think is the fact that it relies upon a the group accepting working with the Dark Elder, which is not a big one for me, um, and b the whole you have to get captured and yeah. Um, if it's done well, I think that could work. It, it's annoying. It always is. It, I, I suppose it really does depend how well it's done, and if the chapter is well written and it does work, and yeah. you do have a chance of getting your gear back. Is it really a problem? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to relate back to a and d game I ran many, many years ago um, when uh, it was just with you and my wife we were playing. And it was never the intended thing, but in a particular combat, just because of bad rolls, uh, both the PCs were defeated. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, so either it's game over here or more likely they're, they're going to be captured for whatever reason. So the next part of the game became getting out of prison, prison and getting your stuff back. Now, that was not planned it just went naturally and it felt natural and I don't think it really felt like it was no it, that was okay because like you said it, it was just a natural progression yeah. it was either that or we both died and had to start all over again okay so if you're the GM running this game can you make it look like this fight was winnable but you just it just didn't work out well it just for didn't you quite work out that well yeah, yeah. Um, it's difficult you, you can if you fudge your dice rolls a little bit yeah yeah uh, <laughs> And that's why FFG is still a very lovely road trader GM screen. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'd say your best bet is actually to fudge the rolls. As backwards as this may sound, is to fudge rolls and make it look like they could have won, but yeah. bad luck. Oh, GM, oh, what am I going to have to do now? Oh, we'll do this. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so that's the end of the adventure. Um, chapter four in the book, which is called The Treacherous Path, is basically the Dark Elder material we discussed in episode 52. So the rules for creating Dark Eldar, ideas for playing them, the whole pain token mechanic, um, their talents and skills, yep. um, the Dark Eldar armory. Yep. And interesting enough, this is where the major NPCs for the adventure appear back here as well. They don't actually appear in, in the adventure section, which is a bit odd. Yep. Um, and also, don't forget, if you have the book Soul Reaver, there is also the Dark Kin supplement available for download from FFG's website. Which is actually very good. Yeah, which has more options for the, for the Dark Eldar as well. Um, overall, I think this is a 7 out of 10. It, it, I, I actually do like this book, despite what other people have said about it. Yeah. See, I can't give it a good, fair rating, because I've only read the Dark Eldar character section yeah. and the website. Yeah. So I can't really comment. Yeah, I mean, your overall opinion of the Dark Eldar section in the book? I think compared to, say, The Town yeah. or Weird Boys, I think it's balanced. Um, probably on level with what I'd say Crute and normal orcs are, so I feel that it's balanced to the, the, the beginning Xenos races. It is a little unbalanced in regards to a starting normal character, yeah. um, just because of the unnatural agility, but with the way unnatural agility works in the road trader setting, it's not increasing your movement speed. It's yeah. not so bad. There's no real talents that mean that your unnatural agility is going to give you loads of extra dodges or anything, so that's not a problem. It just means they're probably going to go first every single time you get in combat. Yeah, because it takes initiative. But I'd expect that from a Dark Elder. That's it, yeah. So Especially not... a paranoid one. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think they all start with the paranoid <laughs> talent as well. Um, so yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's fair to say that it's balanced. It, it's not too bad. 
their weapons certainly aren't as overpowered as the tower weapons. Yeah. I, I felt that the tower weapons and armor were, in particular, quite unbalanced. Um, yeah, I'd rate Yeah, I, I would like to play one of those in the game. This is uh, sort of tower, a dark elder, to see how it actually goes at some point. Yeah, well, I'd love to as well, but yeah. it just doesn't feel quite balanced. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think one of the ideas here in this one is if someone does die during the um, the module, it would be conceivable to replace them with a Dark Elder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That being said, once we're in the Slave Pits, you can use other humans as well. Yeah. So, yeah, just an idea. All right, let's keep going, shall we? Yep. Ignorance is a blessing. The data you requested is unavailable. All right, so one last discussion before we finish off. And I guess this, this does go on quite a bit from what we've already discussed with the colony section of the book as well. And we've, we've talked about this in the scope of Road Trader as well. And this is the idea of Empire Building. So, you're playing Rogue Trader, and, and what does a Rogue Trader actually want? What are they actually trying to achieve? They're trying to achieve ascendancy for their family. Yeah. They basically want to be master their own destiny, you know. Um, they want to it, provide for their future and the future of their children. <laughs> well, I think really for their future is probably, a lot of them are quite, quite selfishly minded as such. Yeah. Just, I was having this conversation actually with, with some day. So one of the people playing in our, our new Rogue Trader game has not played a lot of 40k RPGs. His experience with 40k is pretty much limited to the first edition Rogue Trader um, tabletop game. Tabletop game, you know. And he's saying, oh, from what he's read of reading the RPG, Rogue Trader seemed quite different you know, to what he was used to. And I said, you got to realise that, that Rogue Traders that were created in the time of the Emperor were were proud families that were tasked by the Emperor with going out and you know, recovering lost settlements of man, they were given incredible power, uh, but they had a sacred mission as such. You know, fast forward ten thousand years, they've still got the power. They've still got all the power, but no oversight. And, and you know, and, th- and they're that far down the line that you know, very few of them, you know, really feel that strong connection to the original goal. It's just, you know, I was born into immense power, and I want to protect that power at all costs yep. and, and grow it where possible. Yeah, so it's not hard to see why they become, by and large, corrupt, corrupt and less scrupulous, especially if they are ancient families of such as well, yeah. um, which the one in our game is. <laughs> so uh, I said that's where it's different between what you're used to with the emperor time versus now. Uh, anyway, uh, so I guess there's two concepts. When I say when I think there's also another reason. Yeah. Thirty years have passed in, <laughs> in, right, in yeah. writing canon and changing things and retconning the past. Exactly. Uh, now, whenever I think of the term empire building, I guess it breaks down into two separate elements we need to discuss. Let's talk about the bad one first. Um, some rogue traders uh, get to the point where they start to elevate themselves above the Imperium itself. Yes. You know, so I'm going to all these planets and I am finding these lost civilizations of man. And, and they first thing they do is they worship this, you know, god which descended from the from the from space. On, you know, on steel wings. Yeah, uh, you, you, you have to think that being considered a god has to be, you know, quite an ego boost. <laughs> People have already got immense egos. There's <laughs> a, a, a bit of a narcissist complex in, in some of these people. Uh, but but uh, so, so some of these people get this power, let this power go to their head. You know, they, they're supposed to go there and say, yes, I am more powerful, but I'm also simply a messenger of a much more powerful being, which is the person you should be worshipping. And sometimes that second message gets a little bit lost in the whole grandeur of this individual that comes there. And uh, it's not uncommon to see these worlds raising edifices in worship of the rogue trader and their family line, not necessarily 
you know, the emperor, it's not with the, with the degree of reverence that the, the imperial expects from the liberty of the emperor. Yeah. Uh, and, and this will occasionally, usually, get back to the Imperium eventually that, that this rogue trader is effectively cultivating this ideal that they are as important as, if not more important, than the God Emperor of Mankind. Yeah. Uh, and this is not a good thing. Yeah. No. Uh, this is a punishable by death thing, you know. A, a, even for a rogue trader? Even for a rogue trader yeah, who has this immense power, you know, it's one of the few ways they can really lose their power. So it's, it comes down to the whole temptation of, do I want to take the risk of, you know, living free and comfortably treated like a god for the rest of my natural existence against the risk that I might lose said natural existence? Yeah, especially since it's one of the few things that actually draws the attention of the uh, official assassin or Yes. It's something that they send assassins out to deal with. Yeah. Actual assassins. Yeah. Not just not just some guy on the street with, with a pistol. An actual <laughs> temple that. assassin. That's it. Because not, nothing really proves someone's not a god quite as much as watching them die. Yeah. Getting their head blown <laughs> off by a vindicator bullet. That's it, yeah. Um, so that's a bad one. That's what you want to try and avoid, really. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about that, the positive side of Empire Building. And this is not just a narrative concept of the game. This is a role-playing concept for actually running Road Trader. Is that uh, if you want to run Road Trader as a sandbox, which I think I think out of all the games, it is probably the most, well, between it and Black Crusade, yeah, the most suited to the sandbox-type play. And um, Dark Heresy, if there's an Inquisitor in play as a character. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, but they still have you know, key objectives, I guess. Any okay. case... So what the players inside, okay, they are rogue traders. They have this ship. They have the you know the crow's expanse at their at their footstep or wherever you're sending it. What do they want to do? You know, is it is it just exploration? You know, probably at some point or other they're going to come across a world uh, or a group or a resource and they're going to want to claim that. And I personally find it interesting when these things become tangible stuff that the group has. You know, when Product Factor, as I mentioned before, is more than just a number on the sheet. It's actually a, a description of several things that represent the, the wealth, power, and influence of this dynasty. Yeah. So, colonies, uh, probably the easiest one to, to look at, you know, saying that you've, you know, you've got these places that you are cultivating. Um, but the other thing I think people look for is multiple ships. Yeah, they, they want to be a fleet of vessels. Yes. Uh, and once you've got more ships, you can also start looking at doing things like the um, uh, endeavours that are taken on by NPCs as well. Yeah. So I would suggest to a GM looking at running Road Trader that you consider how much are you prepared to give to your players in terms of letting them sort of grow what, what it is they own. Because once they have a lot of things, they start to take on less meaning as well. So the ship is a very important part of Road Trader. You know, it's a, it's a very high risk to lose resource, you know, but once you've got four or five of them, then mm. I lose a ship, oh, well, you know, that's why I can use the four ships I've got left to go and claim another one from somewhere else. Um, they just become things, you know, so how do you both encourage players to get excited about building what they have without making them become, without letting them become, um, I guess, invisible to the value that those individual items still have? And what are your thoughts on this concept within the road trading game? Um, I agree, but I, I think that if you are adding in additional ships, yep. you should also have some sort of control in place. If they've got building loads of profit factor from various mining planets, well, someone has to pick that ore up and take it back as a tire. You're going to have to use one of your ships to do that. Yeah. The Imperium isn't going to, you know, they're going to say, well, we've got all these ships, 
use them. Those sorts of things can happen. Sometimes you can just take these things away. I mean, there are plenty of mechanics in play with you know disasters that can befall the line to, to remove things that you created as a problem. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't come out and say don't ever let them get another ship. No. No. Yeah. You have to draw the line somewhere, and I think it's a good idea to to keep an eye on the way the players are reacting when they get their second ship as to if you draw the line there or if you continue to let it grow. So, in terms of what the group can own, I mean, we can say they can own, they can own ships. Yeah. They can own planets. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would think as a road trader group you want to be trying to oh. yeah, yeah, get more of stockpile? Gear. Yeah. Various gear. I mean, it depends on the sort of road trader and what their motivation is as such. But they may want to have a, a, a large collection of Xenos power swords that they keep on the wall in their in their trophy room, yeah. and that can become a focus if the player wants it to be. Like it can be whatever they want. What about raising armies and waging wars? I mean, this is the thing that like we mentioned before. If you if someone has a resource that they define, once that resource comes under threat, it's more people than players as such. So if there's yeah. if orcs suddenly invade their colony world, they're going to want to have an army to defend it. And yeah, definitely they're going to want to build forces and defend themselves. But I think that it's a good idea to make sure that if you want it to go that route, that the first chance they have to know that orcs are coming isn't when orcs are landing and butchering their people. Mm. You know, create the signs that it's come. Make yeah. sure that they have at least a session to start preparing and start worrying and start scouting ahead. Maybe they want to go and, and, and look at this orc force and have a look, see it, see who the war boss is, scope out the war. Yeah, that's it, yeah. There's a genius of the cop. Must be a high fleet coming. <laughs> Hopefully not. Yeah. Um, all right, yeah. I just found that when we ran the Unbound that I, I really had to try and curb players' enthusiasm with just having things, things, so much stuff. Because when you can acquire, you know, a thousand times something, that yeah, each individual thing becomes not worth very much. Well, that's it. That was something that I always felt that players struggle to understand is things like power up. There might not even be a thousand suits of power armor in the entire Coronas Expanse. Yeah. It's kind of hard to just go, oh yeah, I'll get a thousand of them. I've made the profit factor up. Well, doesn't matter. You know, you're buying individual suits from individual people. It could take years to get every single suit that you've rolled. Yeah. Well, because things like power are near unique, which means you can't get the benefit for only one. Yeah. <laughs> because there really is one available. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's not just a case of as players see players want sometimes, and so you put a ship or a planet in front, they're going to want it. But I guess the other thing is encouraging them to actually build their own things too. Yeah. One other ship, you know, it's not impossible to to get to, one to, built to build a ship. Exactly right. Yeah, it takes a lot of resources, but that could be a grand endeavor in itself. You know. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, I've always not quite liked with the system is the fact that when you do an endeavor, any unrequired achievement points you were, you were, uh, you got translate to profit factor, profit factor. yeah because I, mean, I often found that when I did that people were getting more profit factor from their overachievements than they were than from what the original endeavor was worth well I'd say probably you'd, as a house you'd house rule yeah maximum extra profit factor you can get is half of what the entire well the first thing I did was I house ruled that if the if they had points in a type that was not required for the for the it doesn't um, count endeavor yeah. that's it yeah so because a lot of people would have like you know plus 100 military points for their barracks on the ship, or whatever, and 
you know, they were doing a, a trade objective. I'm saying, well, the... Well, it, it depends. I mean, you, you've got to look at it from a sensible point of view. You could say, yes, you, you're taking mercenaries, a mercenary company from one planet to another. Yeah, you're just you, providing you, transport. You, strong, you strong arm them in the trade agreement and they pay you more than they would have otherwise paid. Yeah, something like that. But if you're doing... It, it depends on the on what the item is that's giving you the points as well. If you've got a brig in your ship, yeah. she's giving you prisoners, you know, you're transporting, you're doing a ministorum contract to go and collect a relic. The player has to explain how those criminal points are going to pay off as additional profit factor. Yeah. Maybe they've got a whole bunch of heretics they're going to hand over to the ministorum to turn into arco flash. And and the way they use that may also affect the I guess the fluff associated with it. Like what kind of example of using military to do a trade objective, they may develop a reputation as being stronger. Yeah, so it, people yeah. who stronger. And if you take if you decide to grab a whole bunch of prisoners and you sell them into slavery or you hand them over to be turned into archoplasm, whether they're heretics or not, that's going to give you a bad reputation amongst the underworld, and it could cause additional adventures further on. Yeah. So I don't want to go too far on this path because I'm actually slated for our next road trip episode to talk about the achievement point system oh, okay. in, in general. So we should, we should probably hold some of it to there. Yeah, we'll, we'll hold a lot of it too. But yeah, I guess what I really want to get at tonight is that one of the things I find most interesting about the road trading game is the ability to sort of create more than just player characters. Yeah, you, you're yeah. creating a dynasty. Yeah, that's it. And a part of that is the fact that if the rogue trader dies, the character dies, you have, as a dynasty, you have the option of bringing someone else in as another character to take up the mantle. Yeah. And the progress isn't lost. That's it. All right, well, what do you say we're going to finish off the show? Okay. All astropaths to the choir chamber. Message incoming. So at this point in the show, we normally talk about any feedback or... Uh, Reviews. Reviews or, or questions that we got. And I can say that there have been none. None really in the last in the last one. I, mean, I did post some of the character images that we've done for the new game and had a few people make some nice comments about that. But yeah. no questions, nothing to really talk about this show. So thank you for anybody that does enjoy the show. And if you do tell your friends about it, we appreciate it too. If you do want to review us, please jump onto iTunes and write a review there. But uh, yeah. if you want to contact us directly, we will, we'll, we try to respond to every single question comment or uh, criticism we can get, uh, you can go through our website, which is www.grimdartpodcast. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash grimdartpodcast. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com slash plus sign grimdartpodcast. Uh, we tweet through at grimdartpodcast. Our email is show at grimdartpodcast.com. But that is currently down because apparently we've been spamming people. I, I just got an email from my server yesterday saying that Somehow the, the grimmed up podcast are kind of spamming people, so I'm going to try and find out okay. what's going on there. <laughs> so Sounds unlikely, but fair enough. Yeah, hopefully they'll hopefully get fixed up soon. Uh, also, the, a voicemail link on the uh, left right hand side of our website when you go on there. Just click on send voicemail. And as I mentioned before, we've got our drive through RPG affiliate link as well. Uh, okay, so coming up is episode 68, which is our next Death Watch episode. Uh, I'm going to be talking about crafting in Death Watch. Yep. Which is not a system that hugely exists, but this might be one of our first things where we're going to start talking about a few more house rules. Okay. Because let's face it, pick your favorite marine chapter, they're probably master craftsmen. 
Yeah, almost certainly. <laughs> That's it, yes. Uh, and it's, it's, it's poignant because we're talking about the Salamanders as well, who uh, really are master craft, master craft. Yeah. Out of all of them, I, I think realistically there are three which I would call master craftsmen, yeah. which would be the Salamanders, Iron the Hands. Iron Hands, and the Blood Angels. But the yeah. Blood Angels only in making it look pretty, not in actually making it useful. That's it. Uh, I want to talk about downtime in, Marine, in, in a game with Marines. We've spoken in the past about life as a Marine, yeah. but how you really represent the non, non-mission time the Marines do. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to do a review of Death Watch Overkill. Okay. Yeah, so, should be a fun episode coming up in a couple of weeks' time. Hope you enjoyed tonight's episode as well and that you got something out of it. I'm looking forward to our first session of Rogue Trader, which will certainly be reporting. I, I did say that uh, we won't record it like we do with our Roll20 game because my wife plays in it and my wife is hor- hor- horrifyingly opposed to cameras and microphones. Yeah, yeah nothing uh, wrong with that. <laughs> that's it, but uh, it will certainly be giving regular campaign updates on the show as well. Excellent. So we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you, Mike, for your participation. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. This podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Games Workshop or Fantasy Flight Games. Warhammer 40,000, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Only War, Eternal Crusade, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Fantasy Flight Games is a trademark of Fantasy Flight Publishing, Inc. All other materials are trademark and or copyright of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grimdark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music comes from Mibios Music Alley. Music.mibio.com.